0: Hi, this is Terry Lynn Carrington, and this is Coffee Talk.
1: Hello and welcome again to the official podcast of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music. My name's Ian, and we are back with another episode of Coffee Talk for You. This week we're joined by Terry Lynn Carrington, a drummer who's a national endowment of the arts artist three-time Grammy Award winner and was the first woman to win Grammy for Best Instrumental Jazz Album. In addition to teaching here, Professor Carrington is also the founder and director of the Jazz and Gender Justice Institute here at Berklee College of Music. Her latest project, New Standards, Volume 1, highlights the work of women composers in jazz who have often been overlooked in their impact on the music. New Standards is both a book of 101 compositions by women composers and an album that was just released of 11 of these compositions featuring an all-star lineup of musicians. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Terry Lynn Carrington.
2: Hi, everyone, I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the Guitar Department at Berkeley College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. As usual, we are joined by Assistant Chair Cheryl Bailey. Hey, good morning, Cheryl. Good morning. I have kind of a strange, disturbing coffee cup. It's a goat,
3: <laughs> it's a goat head. It's a, go- it's a goat head, but it's friendly. It's friendly. It's
2: <laughs> okay. Look out, everyone coming in for advising after midterms. Cheryl's got her goat head mug. Um, all the way from New York uh, on her way to uh, play a beautiful concert this weekend. Um, we have Ian Steed, our senior coordinator, as usual. Hey, Ian.
1: Hey, all. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Cheryl,
1: I really dig your mug. That That's sick. <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: great. And our special guest today is our friend and colleague, Terry Lynn Carrington, who is the director of the Jazz and Gender Justice and an incredible drummer, and we're thrilled to have you. Hi, Terry.
0: Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is a little early and I have my coffee, too. Ooh,
2: that's good. So
0: Canadian that's, mug. Ooh,
2: that's our first question usually is what are you drinking?
0: Um, This mug says Alice in Montreal. I don't know who Alice is, mm-hmm. but um, I bought this in Montreal. It was the last stop before the pandemic. And I was leaving, checking out of the hotel a day before my gig actually happened. <laughs> And um, I said, let me buy this memento so I can have something to remember as I rushed back home. Um, But inside of it is a coffee, a cappuccino that I made um, with a Nespresso coffee pot.
2: Mm. I like how you were you really kicked it back when you took a sip of coffee.
0: (laughs) Because there's hardly any left.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So do you feel like your coffee choices have been influenced by the amount of time you spend traveling? Like, are you, do you have a system of making sure you get good coffee on the road or how does that work for you? Well,
0: I don't have a system. Um, I just complain a lot. Okay. And <laughs> because I often get bad coffee, but, um, I just try to find local shops mostly. Um, and then if I can't find any, I'll, you know, prefer to Starbucks or something. But I always try to find a local shop in the city that I'm in um, and get some recommendations from a hotel or or whoever is picking me up. Um, but I do have to have a cappuccino pretty much every morning, and um, I've moved to that. It's easier um, on the stomach for me than drip coffee
2: mm-hmm. yeah yeah i I think that's something that comes up a lot. we students are wondering, you know. They're thinking about their own kind of routines and how things change. And you know, as someone who you know you you live here in Boston to be at Berkeley, but then you're often living in a lot of different places.
0: Yeah, I would say fifty percent of the time, it's, right. actually, probably more than that. I'm not in Boston, so
2: you know. And as much as like we talk about coffee because it's the name of the show and and it's part of our hang, it's like there is something about this for everyone that seems to be a a way you give yourself consistency. Hmm. And that must be important in other parts of your life too. Like if you're going to be on the road 50% of the time, um, having some kind of consistent routine for yourself. And then I'm sure in your practicing is really important.
0: Yeah. uh, I never really thought about it. It it does feel, I, I guess I was looking at it more like a habit, but it does feel, uh more like a, a a spiritual um you know part of 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 my day you know just like if i have a gig i've now had to take some time before the gig in the dressing room by myself which i never had to do before
2: mm-hmm.
0: and now that's a part of my routine before i play just to kind of settle myself and focus and think about what i'm going to do or say um But yes, the the morning coffee, I do feel a little off if something happens and I don't get it. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, it is part of a routine that's important. Um, Unfortunately, I've never really had a good practice routine, so I don't have one of those (laughs) on the instrument, which is really kicking me in the ass right now, because as you get older, you know, like I've always just had, you know, decent hands, but now I feel like a hack, you know, <laughs> all the time <laughs> because I don't practice mm-hmm. and I know that I should. And, you know, you can imagine at this point in my life, everything is pulling me in all these other directions and I actually don't have to play the drums anymore to make a living, right? Uh, nor teach. So it's interesting how I have to make like a conscious effort to just warm up to find like just 15 minutes, you know, even just before I have to play, even though 15 minutes isn't enough, it's something to get my wrist moving so that I don't feel awful, you know, about about a performance. Yeah.
2: There are so many things that you said we could make hours of what you just said, because all of it is so honest and really, really true. And something I think that we don't always talk about which is kind of what I love. Like every time I've gotten to sit and listen to you talk, I walk away saying, that woman's telling the truth, like about things that I think about, you know? Um, And I want to go back to the first thing you said about having to take time before you play and center yourself. Um, Because as a classical musician, that's something I relate to just because of the nature of that as a soloist. Can you talk about why you think that's necessary for you to have quiet moments now in your life? Is there a reason you think that became necessary?
0: Uh, That's an interesting question. I think I've never really thought about the why Mm -hmm. behind it. Um, Just noticed a shift. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe because I'm more appreciative of the times that I do get to play and lead a band. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't do it as much as my agents would like for me to. You know, I, 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 I if I play, you know, once or twice a month, it's you know, that's good. You know, that's a lot. Like, I just had a gig and um, I guess it was last. What are we in October? In the very beginning of October. And, uh, you know, my band was like, oh, my God, we don't have a gig until February or something, you know. And I try to keep you know, some gigs going just so I can also keep the camaraderie of the band and keep things moving um, or to keep things together, but, uh, I don't play that often like uh, as a leader. So, uh, or as a side person, but now I feel like I'm so grateful for the times that I do that. I really want to make sure each performance is the best I can do. I, you know, I never mailed it in, but I could be scattered and still, you know, have a decent gig and now I'm taking it to heart a little more. So I want to think about what I'm going to say, if there's any um, reflections on the city that I'm in, people that I've met, uh, you know, what kind of room it is and what I think the set should be after taking a you know, peek at the crowd or, you know, all of these different things that helped me take it a little more I don't want to say more seriously because I always take it seriously but just something that helps me hone in on this moment and um something that I always you know give credit to uh this is by hear, hearsay but that I heard that Erica Badu said which is um that like when you're in the studio um you're perfecting a moment But when you're doing a live concert, you're perfecting an experience. Yeah. And so, you know, that's always in the back of my mind. How do I make this experience uh, meaningful, not just for the listeners and audience, but for myself and the band as well.
3: Mm.
2: You know, there's so much of that wisdom that I think when I think of the students now, I feel like a lot of times even coming to class people are distracted. They have so many things on their mind, maybe for the first time. They're not equipped. They're not really experienced with managing all of these things. And it would be a really nice thing. I mean, even to come to class now, sometimes I just have everybody set up and get their sound and take a breath and sit there. And do you think that some of this stuff that you're kind of identifying as an, as an older musician in a touring capacity and a playing capacity has translated into the way you mentor students, even when you're not directly teaching them, because there's so much mentorship that you're doing now.
0: Mm, absolutely. I mean, all I can do is bring where I am at the moment to the students. Mm-hmm. And that's how I teach. Cause I'm, uh, you know, an improviser <laughs> meaning in every aspect of my life. So even with teaching, I I read the room. I feel like what am I going to do today, and I always find something impactful because it's I I I go with the flow. You know, I I believe that there's a you know universal flow that we have to be in tune with, Mm -hmm. and um, you know I've come to trust it, and I I believe that the universe unfolds as it should when you trust it. Um, I say that that's a very What's the word? The privileged thing, in a sense, to say because I do feel like it does not unfold as it should for everyone, even if they trust me. Right. I feel very privileged in that way. Um, so yes, with teaching, all I can do is is bring you know where where I am. So I I should probably do the breath, you know, because I think that is important. They need to breathe together when they play. So why not you know have a moment of breathing together before. <laughs> um, but often I'm running into the room and you know trying to give them this as close to two hours as possible, and you know kind of it, it's it's all in haste. <laughs> uh, so I, I never think to stop to take the time that I would take before a performance. Yeah. Um, you know to, to center everyone, but I try to center them through the music. I make I make them try to, try to make them understand the importance of being present. Um, just. Just Tuesday night, I had an ensemble, and uh, I I asked them to play as long as they could, to take a solo as long as they could. They were all looking at me like I was crazy. Um, And then somebody looked at their watch. I said, oh, no, it's not going to take as long as you think. (laughs) Because what I have found is, you know, this generation, they don't know how to sustain solos. You know, and play something good, you know, like don't just take as long as you can and play bad, but really try to make something happen for as long as you can. And uh I don't think they have enough opportunity to do that unless maybe a jam session or uh some kind of session they you know jamming with their friends or whatever, but um that's an issue to me. Um s- sustaining, you know, endurance. And uh I saw So there's one kid who happens to His solo was not, you know, he had, he was struggling to me. (laughs) And then when he finished, after everybody sat through his solo for like 10 minutes, I don't know. He got on his phone and I was so irate. Because, and he's not, he hasn't normally done that. Like, I don't think, but I was still irate. And I, I, I got on my computer immediately and. Emailed him while he was on his phone, saying, "Get off your phone." <laughs> um. And anyway, my point is, just that that thing about being present um, is is really important, and we have to you know fight for that in all settings. You know, in, in an ensemble room, in a classroom, uh, on stage. is the only place, really, on stage. Well, yeah, in a classroom too, is where I totally tune out everything else you know nothing enters no chatter nothing and i didn't set out to do that that's just what happened and that's when i knew that this is a spiritual place for me this is a place where where everything else goes away even my headache if i have it you know what i mean so uh i think we have to fight for those moments
2: you know, I'm going to turn this to Cheryl, because this is a topic, it's almost like you were with us yesterday. We spent most of yesterday talking about this, mm-hmm. about how do you teach young people to create presence when their whole life has been about a constant stream of distraction. And and part of being present is also being able and willing to sit with yourself. And sometimes that's why I think my students run out of ideas because they just aren't, they are not practiced in sitting and seeing, you know, what do I really want to say? Mm -hmm. And, um, Cheryl, I'm wondering what you're thinking about. And if, um, you have something to talk with Terry about, about this topic, that's just been such a big part of our recent talks with, with faculty.
3: Yeah. Well, there were so many things, even that we'll reel back. Some of the things you talked about earlier, um, because there were so many things you said that I was, I wanted to open up a little bit more, but this, this is, yeah, this is a big thing. I feel our generation, we were here before the internet. So we knew how to sit down and play or practice or just be undistracted for a long time. And, and at least in my experience playing or practicing music was in that way, it was just a sacred space, right. Where, um, I could get away from anyone or any situation that was negative to me or whatever that was like that was it that's the place and and i i think our students are struggling to find that space but it makes me think about what you're saying about being an improviser um one time they asked um you know tina fey who's the writer and director and all that she does a great things, and, and comedy, and, and and she was talking about, you know, improv comedy, and she said, well, the first thing you need to understand are there are no mistakes, but if she was talking about this thing about if you're really in the moment, you react to it, and that's really what you need to do to play music, whether you're improvising music or you're playing a prepared piece, you have to be in the moment, but, you know, she was kind of saying, like, whatever the next person says to you, you have to be listening and respond to it, And that's how it goes. And that's how it gets great. The more that you listen and respond to what's happening, then you create something amazing. And that's really what we do musically, right? You have to be in that moment and listen. It's not a monologue. It's a conversation between the whole group. So yeah, I'm curious if, if you want to talk more about that, how you do that for yourself and, and with your students to to. I mean, it sounds like you're you're doing that in your class where you're you're you know making them aware of that because I don't think there are other places in our modern life where people are valuing that.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say it's not a monologue. You know, for some people it is. <laughs> it's some some jazz musicians it's a monologue. <laughs> but um, you know, I always, you know, I, I, I'm reacting like that because I've been having some conversations lately about this whole idea of jazz and democracy and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's maybe, uh, uh, aspirational, you know, in some settings, you know, to be democratic, um, and how do you get people to truly respond in a moment when they've practiced things and these things, you know, come out, even if I was just looking at drumming, I'm sure it's the same with guitar, like your hands tend to go in certain directions based on everything, what you've practiced, exercises, technique, or even just what you've practiced as an improviser, it just, it tends to go in, uh, you know, even if you're not consciously just playing licks, it tends to go in a certain way. So it's always about uh, breaking habits, you know, to me as an improviser, when you're speaking about improvising, it's really always about how do I break some of these habits that, you know, are natural to me and push myself, <clears throat> push myself, uh, to really, truly respond in the moment, not just based on a vocabulary that I have and know, um, so, you know, we talk a lot about that breaking habits and also about um, uh, figuring out that balance of how to be both on input mode and output mode, which is super important when you're responding. Right. But you have to hear and respond with without delay. You know, and um, so that's, you know, that's an important thing to try to find to, to sit in the middle of. And then you develop, I think, over time, through experience, um, musical wisdom that just kind of naturally tells you uh, what to do at any given moment to pull the magic you know out of that moment. And it does take wisdom and experience. So uh, magical moments, you know, they can take time. I mean, if I look at my own development, yeah, it took a minute, you know. It took a minute. Uh, I I feel like I was regurgitating, you know, a lot of information things. But, you know, there's so many different things to improvising. I mean, and, and especially, you know, within jazz is like, uh, you know, there's an energy and a feeling that has to be there. And I think that's the most important foundation. Um, and then you get into these finer, you know, more fine tuned things. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of, you know, some thoughts. Uh, on that and how to practice being in a moment. It is a practice like anything else. So uh, like I've I've practiced Buddhism for, I don't know, 30 years. I'm, the, I'm a bad Buddhist, but because I don't really practice so much, <laughs> but it's in my heart. <laughs> I practice like I practice the drums <laughs> uh, inconsistently and in, in my heart and mind. <laughs>
3: You know that crack, I'm just amazed when you say that because you are known for this incredible technique and control on your drums that you're like, that you struggle with practicing. It is just blows my mind because actually this was one thing that I was curious to have a conversation with you about because um, you know I, for instance I, I've had conversations with folks that have. Had you on there as a side person on a project, and they brought a project like Helen Song, I think, is the person who said this to me. She said, When you bring in music for Terry, she knows it better than you do.
0: (laughs) <laughs>
3: she comes into the studio with the music prepared better than you even knew. And she knows things about the music that you didn't even know as the composer. And that I've always had that in my mind when she told me that as an inspiration and just kind of wonderment. So I guess my I was really curious to have this conversation with you about your process when you're working on some new music. And obviously, you you've had to learn the music of people like herbie hancock and wayne shorter and you know on and on and on of people that have very complex and nuanced music and you have to come in the studio or to the concert and play it like you know it inside now and obviously you do so i'm I'm just curious what your process is
0: i just try to internalize it so i like i don't understand how people learn these days because they learn a piece and then if you ask them to play that same piece a year later or two weeks later, in some cases, it's like they're starting over. And that I don't fully understand, because when you learn something, I think you internalize it. So you could say, you know, there's memory attached to that. Um, but even when there's not like full on memory, if I learn a difficult piece like I, I always use this piece, I can't remember the name, uh, Paul Ballenbach piece that I played on one of his records. And it's got all these moving time signatures. And I learned it, you know, for the record, but I use the music to glance at if I need to, Um, but I try to internalize the phrases so that I'm not thinking, oh, it's three, it's five, it's seven, it's four, but these make melodic sense. So when I learn the melody, it's already telling me the phrases and the time signatures so that I don't have to know what time signatures I'm even playing in if I learn the melody. And I'm not comfortable playing people's music without knowing it. So that means learning the melody and learning the form. Uh I don't necessarily sit down and learn the chord changes, but I hear them going down. So I, I'm normally able to sing the melody precisely. And I don't, as I said, I don't sit down to play the chord changes, but I can hear them going through my head while I'm singing the melody, so it helps me with form. Um, <clears throat> so, but I returned to this piece of Paul's like 10 years later or something, and I glance at it once and I can still play it without looking at the music. Uh, so, the, so, so the music is for me, because by the time I do a gig, I don't wanna look at music. You know, unless something is so challenging that I have to like, like Wayne Shorter's like 30 minute piece, that I had to play called Gaia. There's no way you can memorize that. Um, but you know, a, a normal one, two, three page, you know, lead sheet is is uh, is possible. So I think because students are so scattered with uh, you know social media and all the things that make short-term, uh, 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 and short-term, short term, short-term short term, short short term environments for them, I think it's more difficult uh, for them to really learn and internalize something. Um, and it's not just students. I remember speaking of Helen, I think she was on this. Um, we did a tour of 10 shows, Mosaic Project, in um, Europe. And Diane Reeves was our guest. And, um, and the 10th show, so after the 10th show, there was champagne and we were all celebrating. And when I ended to do my toast, I said, I have to say, I'm really disappointed in all of you for still reading music. This is not that difficult. <laughs> you know, 10 shows later, you're still reading, <laughs> you know, that would never happen to me. Granted, I'm not playing a melodic instrument, but, um, so that's, you know, that's, you asked about my process. I think that's pretty much sums it up.
3: So for you, it's really melody based.
0: Yeah, because the melody is telling me the, the, the phrases, unless it's a melody that you can't, you know, like some kind of fusion melody, that's a lot of notes that's, you know, or or not just fusion, but you know, like Chris Davis piece, <laughs> not necessarily learning the melody, <laughs> you know, like I have to like, you know, the, some of her pieces I can memorize, but often they're just through, um, like through composed compositions. And so then I have to look at it, but I've still internalized it enough that the phrases make sense. So as I'm glancing at it, I can play it like I know it, you know because I have familiarity with the phrasing.
2: You know what I love about this answer and then the thing that you're talking about at the beginning about currently how you're practicing or not able to practice is, I think that you have a comfort level, it seems, with the different seasons of your life as a musician. And I think that's really challenging. I'm going through that myself, so I identify with that. Where you spent so many years as a musician you're known as practitioner. It was like your identity was, you know, you book Carolyn Carolyn Carrington and she's going to come and she's going to know the tunes better than you. And she has like this technique and this practice routine and the sound. And then as your life has moved forward, you're also called upon to be a teacher, to be a mentor, to run these beautiful programs that we'll talk about that are impacting people's lives in different ways. And because these new opportunities and these new callings come into your life, if you don't go with the flow of that, it could be really challenging because you can't possibly practice as many hours as you used to and then still do these other things. And so I think that we've seen this, I've seen this with myself, I've seen this with other colleagues and faculty. How do you get to the point where you can honestly embrace each part, each phase or season? of Mm. your musical life and still feel like yourself
0: oh yeah I mean I'm kicking and screaming because I'm not used to you know just fighting with my hands the way I do now Uh, but here's the thing like I was never in good practice habit like I practiced even when I was like you know really developing like my hands at 16 17 18 were much better than they are now just as far as hands and um, I still, back then I was only practicing a half hour to an hour a day. And that was based on just my lessons with Alan Dawson. Uh, he was my last drum teacher, uh, which I stopped taking, studying drums at 18 when I got to Berkeley full-time, cause I was going to Berkeley since I was 11 part-time. And then when I got there full-time, I made vibes, my principal, which I was awful at, Um, But I played drums in ensembles, but I took vibes as my private lesson. Um, And so even from that point on, this is the days where you had to schlep your own drums around Berkeley. No drums in the rooms. I always remind people of that. (laughs) You had a locker for your drums and you took them. So it was real drag if you had to, because it was only two buildings, 150 and 1140, so it was a real drag if your locker's in 150 and you had an a, um, ensemble or something you had to do in 1140. <laughs> um, so, you know, cart down the street. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so once you, I got to school, even to practice at school, I'd have to take drums into a practice room. So that wasn't fun. So I shied away, you know, even more. So around 18 is when, in essence, Practicing, since I was already in a bad habit, it it became worse. Um, but I played so often that my chops pretty much maintained. Um, and I practiced music. I, I, and I was, I've always been uh, more into music than the drums. So I, I don't really, I always tell people I don't really love the drums. There's something about them, I, I guess I could say. I have a... Uh, a strong like for. I mean, you know, I, I I love playing, but it's it's not the drums. You know, I think I would have the same love whatever instrument, you know, I, I played. It just happened to be my voice, you know, but it's just, you know, music itself. So that's why I'm so fulfilled doing other things in, in music. Um, and that's why at this stage, you know, I've worked hard at creating other opportunities outside of playing the drums. Um, And they're just as fulfilling. That's why it's hard to sit down and practice. (laughs) Um, But I am kicking and screaming because it feels like it's something of my youth that's, you know, I'm moving past and I have to acknowledge that I'm moving past my youth. So it's not just with the drums. I think it's in life, you know, looking at uh, 57 now. So looking at uh, You know, these coming years and what I want to do with them, uh, and not being attached to the past years. But every now and then, yeah, you want to like keep yourself honest and and let everyone else know. (laughs) You know, yeah, I can still play. You know, I'm going to have a kick ass day sometimes, you know, playing. Uh, Because that's in you, you know. It's not that it's competitive, but it's in you, you know, in order to get to, my level of success, there's, there's a fighter spirit, a warrior spirit that has, that's had to be there. So of course that's still there. So it's, but it's also the wisdom in acknowledging I can't play like these young people. It's, it's not for a couple of reasons. You know, one is, uh, I don't hear like them because of my own experiences. I can let them influence me and I let some of that influence in, but I don't have the same vocabulary or language. And I see where things are moving. So uh I try to reinvent myself or reimagine myself uh, in a lot of different ways. Like, you know, like when I did a record waiting game, that was a little bit of a different me just, you know, this as, as far as what's been on records. Um, but I also just know that I have to make room. And let this generation inspire me, but make room uh, to to support them and acknowledge where things are going. So I, I do that in life, you know, as well and with music. So I think I don't know if that really answered your question, but yeah, I hope it did.
2: It really does. I mean, on a couple levels, I think one is sometimes people listen to these types of conversations and they say, oh, I love this person's play. I'm going to practice just like they did. And I think what you're saying reinforces that you have to practice for what you need. Because Mm -hmm. as a person who started playing out so young, as you did, a lot of the chops that you maintained happened when you were playing. So your practicing served your needs. It always has. Like, what do I need to do to make this music speak and to serve this music? And I think that's a hard transition for a younger person to really say like, what do I need to do? What are my tendencies, where are my gaps? And how does that serve or not serve the music I'm trying to play? And that's a very like mature response to something that has so much emotion attached to it and so much identity attached to it. So I really love your answer.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, and you look to, I mean, so much of practicing is in your mind too. You know, and, and like you said, you look for the gaps and where what do you need to get together? Like I've said for many years, oh, man, I should tackle some gospel drumming, you know, but I never have. And, um, you know, I mean, a couple of times I sat down to some videos or, you know, learned a couple of licks, but it's just it doesn't feel natural to me. And um, so I never really tackled it. But I remember like, you know, over the years, I mean, it took me, I'd say through my 20s to feel comfortable in odd time signatures, like really comfortable. So like, cause I grew up playing straight ahead, you know, for the most part. So uh, it took me until, you know, probably like, yeah, my early thirties or so to feel just as comfortable in seven four as I do in four four, you know, and then, but it did, but it happened. And then uh, it took me till I'd say almost 40, to feel comfortable playing Latin styles. And, I, you know, I remember somebody uh, I was dating actually saying, you know, you need to work on Latin. <laughs> Somebody's a non musician and they were actually absolutely correct. And somehow just mentally. And, you know, I mean, I sat down to the drums a little bit, but, you know, I, I just started I, I had to get the 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 uh, the swagger of the eighth note. You know, I had to start to feel comfortable with that. So that's what I practiced, not the rhythms. I played the rhythms, I could execute the rhythms, but I wasn't comfortable because I wasn't free. And I wasn't free because I was so locked into trying to play these rhythms correctly that I had to at some point say, oh, I want to play this in a way that it doesn't matter what I'm playing, it's going to sound good in this style. So the only way that will happen is if I understand the placement of the eighth note and just, you know, the the phrasing. So that's what I worked on. Mm. I don't know. I I probably took a left turn there. No, no,
2: I love it (laughs) because it takes us back. It takes us back around to something you and Cheryl were talking about a minute ago that I want to tie into your current work. Um, When you were talking about monologues and and uh, building a moment and soloing and and listening to others. you use the word democracy, which um, I love the way that you talk about this. Um, Personally, I had heard it, heard Jazz described this way when when I was a grad student, I had a mentor who also um, founded the um, Africana Studies Department at University of Texas in Austin. Um, She's a theater person, um, Omi Osen Joni Jones. Of Dr. Joni Jones, and she wrote a book on theater and the jazz aesthetic. And as a grad student, you know what you do for the for your mentors is you set up chairs and you go everywhere and you sit with them and they tell you about what they're writing. And she sent me the book like two years ago after it came out. She'd been writing it for years, but it was about this idea of like what would it look like if all voices were more represented in theater, and what could the jazz aesthetic and and the democratic process that's inherent in the cultures that formed that aesthetic in jazz what would that look like and what was you know surprising is is how much we don't think in a democratic way and don't realize it exactly and that's what, right and so I'm I'm hoping that opens this up for you and, and I know that Cheryl was a part of your project um, with creating a new sense of jazz standards and so um, I'm hoping you could take it however you'd like but but it really was no surprise to me when you started talking about this in music. After having that moment of surprise, um, working with um, with Dr. Jones um, in theater,
0: absolutely. Uh, that's why I said uh, jazz being democratic is aspirational, um, and I understand that as an aspiration. But uh, you know, equity with the voices that creates it, that creates the music. Um, is the only thing that, in, at the end of the day, will allow uh, the music to reach its full potential. Um, so my, I won't say argument, but my theory and comments to you know peers and older generation musicians, and some younger generation musicians, but this generation seems to understand it a lot more, at least what I'm seeing uh, through the people that I see at, at Berkeley. Um, and there's also the people that gravitate to us um male players that gravitate to our institute already have a grasp on this issue and uh you know we're fighting to keep a like, more of a 50 50 uh you know split or something in that range uh between male players and uh women identifying or non-binary players because um there's so many young men that seem like, yeah, look, gender justice, let's go, which is really inspiring. Um, but my uh, I, I don't want to use the word argument, but for lack of a better <laughs> word, my my argument to to people is I know that you love this music. And if you truly love it, you want to see it reaches you know, fullest potential. You want to see it develop. Uh, to the best that it can be. And that won't happen until uh, there's gender equity with the people that create it, both um, players and uh, uh, composers and also in other areas, uh, in business and, and with presenters, with uh, who's playing music on radio stations, <laughs> critics, who's writing about the music. My God, there's very few women writing about it. Which uh, is something else that we like to focus on the the idea of because um, Berkeley being a you know performance based school um, but the idea of really inviting more scholarship uh, with, within jazz and for people to to see that as as important uh, because that's how history is written <laughs> you know and that's you know when you think about critics they have such an impact as well I mean. For me to win a uh, for waiting game a record that I thought jazz critics wouldn't like at all to win album of the year group of the year and artist of the year for that record was mind blowing, you know. But we were also coming out of you know all the things that happened in, in 2020. So there's a consciousness that's that's um, been raised now to sustain it. Hopefully, that's another thing. <laughs> You know, but it, so far it feels it feels like it is. You know, I just wrote a major label head this morning. Um, you know, that, you know, how do I say it? How you have to not only say, oh, OK, now I'm going to sign some women, but also be really sincere and honest about, you know, the, in the past and, and the legacy that you've participated in and the harm that you've done. And because, you know, when you think about jazz as a commodity, you know, jazz as a business, nobody's really, you know, addressing the harm that's been done. And uh, so when you can do that, then it feels more like a sincere effort and also be transparent about it, you know, not just say, oh, we see there's a problem, let's. Uh, do something that could at the end of the day feel a little more like a band-aid or an aspirin. Um but you you have to really dig a, a bit deeper or to a marginalized group it's just going to feel like a band-aid or an aspirin and and even like for me all these things were were there. They were there but I just didn't know how to articulate them because we weren't used to having these conversations. So as bad as everything has been for the last couple of years, it's been so good in so many ways, you know, to be able to really address things openly, honestly. And that's the only way, you know, movement is going to happen. And to explain also to people that feel like Oh, let me do this because oh, I see there's a problem. And this is how I fix problems. I'm just going to you know go do this then. That's not really the answer. It's not enough, you know, because you can't apply the same logic that you apply to the mathematics or you know your end of line, you know, with your, with your business. <laughs> you know, you have to really look at this thing deeply. And there's been a lot of studying and writing over the years about gender justice, racial justice. And 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 now more, you know, concerns within music about ableism. Um I mean, you could really go through the various, you know, social justice issues and see how they apply in our field, especially in jazz education or education in general. Um, there's a lot of things that we we have to look at. And I think it's a very exciting time because people are starting to to look at it. And uh with earnest, I think, and, and the people that aren't there they're, you know, going to be gone. (laughs) So the people that we are, you know, hopefully inspiring and training, you know, at the college, you know, these various institutions, we have to make sure we're doing the right thing. I mean, so, yeah, we have to call it out We call it out in institutions that like, you know, have gone to institutions where they have one woman or one black person in their bands and they're supposed to be the top bands in the country (laughs) and and then they ask, well, how do we? And then I get phone calls after. Well, how do we change this? I'm like, why are you asking me? First of all, you know the right things you already know. But there's something that's blocking you. Oh, we have to have the top band. We have to do this. And you don't consider these things to talk. Look at, you know, the systems, you know, your auditions, everything. I mean, this is not my you know work. This is your work to do. You know, already know innately. Everybody knows what's right you choose either to do right things or not to. Um, So, yeah, you have to work harder. I think we all know that if you're trying to make any change, you have to work harder. So there's no fix. Like, you know, if I go to see the top high school band, and I'm a guest artist. I say to the, you know, to to the directors or the uh, whoever, what's happening here? Well, we just can't find, you know, minority players or women or, you know, and I'm like, you have to work harder. You know, and you have to this whole blind audition thing totally against that, because if you're working harder, you have to have your eyes open because nothing has been blind. As Asia Burrell Wood says, I could give her credit for that. Nothing was blind before the audition. You know what I mean? So I don't totally don't agree with blind auditions. Because, like I have a you know five week uh, summer workshop, and in order for me to have diversity in that workshop, I have to consciously say, okay, maybe this person doesn't perform this thing, this task here, up to the this audition level that Berkeley has set up. But I'm going to invite this person because I can hear their potential, and almost all the time the person thrives and gets better and ends up either coming to Berkeley or, you know, one kid I'm thinking of in particular, ended up getting a full scholarship to Manhattan School of Music. And I heard him a couple of years later, he sounded amazing. You know what I mean? And so that those anyway, I could go on and on about those things, but that's how I feel about all of this democracy. We have to you know look at what that even means
2: as a follow-up to that I, I want to hear from both you and cheryl um about how you how you strategize to play the long game in this yourselves because no community is perfect you we both were here at berkeley when it was less perfect in these areas and you are often because you're women and your leaders in your instrument and in your field and and in jazz People are always going to call you, oh, we need a woman jazz guitar player, Cheryl Bailey, we'll call her, you know, Terrilyn Carrington runs this amazing institute, we'll call her and she'll fix our problem. She'll give us the easy out. But you also have to maintain your own art and your own work and your own energy and your life. And I can imagine that, I mean, you know, coming at it from a different style, it's a lot that's put on you, right? Like, as you're saying, so how do you think of it? As a long game in our community and beyond, and um, whoever wants to go first, I guess could go first. Cheryl, how do you think of it?
3: Well, I mean, really, you know, for instance, what Terry has created here with the, the Jazz and Gen- Gender Justice Institute—I mean, that's that's such a big step. Um, the mentoring and 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 it's not just also the young women that we work with, it's the young men who we work with and they you know, look up to us and they learn from us. And when they go out, so I think that's why things are changing because we've been here doing this and it's actually their part of the responsibility. So I was glad to hear about all the young men that are involved with the Institute. But I mean, I think in, in doing that, it does take time, but we are slowly, I mean here in these places where we can have that influence. So I don't know, for for me that's that's what's important is just to to we still need to be on point and have our integrity, because we're always being looked at under a, a sharper lens than than me, our male counterpoints. Um, but you know that I guess from our generation, we've been doing that all the time, right? So, so I guess we continue doing that, but I think these opportunities to really be mentors and work with people. And like Terry, that was a beautiful story about um, seeing the potential and in inviting people in, letting them know that they're welcome to be on the bandstand. That's one of the most important things, that they feel welcome, and then they're gonna, they're gonna rise to the, that and go probably beyond what, what we could have even thought.
0: Yeah, uh, yes, I agree with everything you said on um, mentorship. Uh, it's important for women to mentor men as well as women, of course, you know, often I mean, I started a mentorship, uh, apprenticeship and mentorship program with um, New Music USA that our institute is, is collaborating with. It's really dealing with, um, and we got funded by the Mellon Foundation. Uh, so it's dealing with putting women and non-binary artists on stage with, you know, so taking the mentorship aspect, they get a mentorship, a creative mentorship, but they also get an apprenticeship on stage. And I think that's super important because I had to look at what, you know, really made me, uh, you know, successful. At the end of the day, it was people that gave me a chance often before I was ready. Uh, So I think that, you're right, you know, with mentorship um, and also just mentoring young men is a lot diff- more difficult for a man to get caught up with sexism and misogyny in the music when they've been mentored by a woman. You know, if you've had a woman like kicking your butt. It's a lot more difficult for you for you to form those thoughts. But what I'm also finding is a, a lot of the young men are rejecting the the. Um, Jazz masculinity, so to say, that uh, has been uh, pervasive in the music for so long, and that's that's very cool uh, to witness, and that's why I have hoped that things are definitely moving in the right direction. But as far as what you also asked, Kim, um, and how do you you know maintain your career and and not be the the token or you know all those things. I mean, it, it comes down to choices. So that's why, you know, I mean, because I'm really passionate about this work. If somebody calls me, I'm going to try to. Give them some kind of inspiration, but I'm not going to do the work for them and I'm not going to be tokenized. And I, I I personally, nor the Institute, uh, cannot be a catch all for everybody that's, you know, wants to whether at Berkeley or in Boston or nationally, <laughs> you know it, it can't be a catch-all for oh we we want to do something with you know jazz and gender oh we should do something with jazz and gender let's call them so we have to definitely uh, pick and choose you know the areas that we feel are the most impactful um, though it's it's your inclination to do everything and I think women have done that for a lot of years worked too hard done too much for a, less or little credit. Uh, So, you know, that's another lesson because I'm in that habit as well. Uh, But I'm trying to learn, you know, because you said the long game, and at the end of the day, the long game is important for me right now at my age, as I, you know, starting to look at, you know, my, I don't know. What would that be? I'm in my sixth decade of life. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? The long game is around the corner. So so, yeah, being more thoughtful and and uh, like I, I get tired of, the, you know, radical self-care and all that's like a catchphrase. I get tired and I don't want to hear you know, a 19 year old, a 20 year old telling me, you know, how they need self-care. I mean, some some I do, but I mean, it can be it can go to the extreme like I've had uh, situations where people have not shown up for things because they needed self-care. And I'm like, wait a second, you know, this is an opportunity. I think this generation, um, you know, they're in tune to these things, but also uh, sometimes I feel like it's. uh, How do I say this? Um, sometimes I feel like it's at the expense of other things that are important as well. So balance with all of this has to happen. or you know, because you have to have a strong work ethic because that, I mean there's a, like if you just look at Berkeley, how many students are studying the same thing, and you know, it depends on really what you want out of it. Uh, but I don't know anybody that's really been successful without a strong work ethic. Um, And so you do have to balance the self-care, but it can't be an excuse not to work hard. I think that's what I'm trying to say.
2: (laughs) You know, it's great because you've segued right into a question that Ian always asks as almost our kind of wrap up question. And um, I think it's perfect timing um, also knowing that you have um, famously hired Berkeley alums from the guitar department to be in your band, um, two of whom are on our faculty now. And um, and I think uh, this would be a good way for people to kind of think about some of the things you're talking about. So, Ian, go ahead. Ask your question.
1: Yeah. Uh, So here's a question that we always ask everybody on this um, this podcast, which is what's something that students should be thinking about that they might not think about or like a question that they should be asking that they might not think to ask? Like something that's not quite on their radar.
0: Ooh, there's there's probably a lot. You know, I mean, I'm trying to think of some big overarching question. Um, I tend to think of the smaller ones that I've already sort of addressed in this in this um, in this Zoom. <laughs> uh, and one would be having a strong work ethic and how how you develop that. The other one I addressed is um, is uh stamina and, and, and sustainability in, in, in your playing. Uh, there's also, you know, another thing that I'm noticing is with all the social media, uh, these postings of short, and it goes back to kind of, you know, how do you sustain something, but these short uh, postings, um, and people becoming social media stars without being able to play a gig, you know, there's a lot of that going on, you know, really, you know, I don't care that you have, you can have a million views doing something for 30 seconds or a minute, but can you play a a, a full show? Like, do you even have repertoire? You know, people are calling themselves artists because, and have one song and it might be a good song, <laughs> but I think they they haven't, they don't have an album. <laughs> so how are you going to go do a show? You know, <laughs> Your one song and then covers, but can you even sustain an entire show? You know what I mean? So I think that's something, you know, this uh, these students should think about. I think a lot of the serious jazz students already understand that because of the nature of, of jazz, and a lot of them are prolific. Now, another problem with that, though, the, the prolific students that have written a lot of music is there. So concerned with writing their own music that they have not played enough of other people's music. So they're f- moving right into this leadership role and what they feel, um, you know, like making their own statements <laughs> before they've actually uh, been in a side person situation and been mentored by people that know more than them, other than their teachers. So I, I find you know a little problem with that as well.
2: This was great. I mean, I don't think we could have said it better. So I hope that everyone rewinds that part and listens to it over and over again. We're going to be putting it out there as well. Um, Cheryl, we're wrapping up our coffee. What's on your mind? As as we're finishing up.
3: Yeah. Well, Terry Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. We really we wanted to have you on this show, and and the conversation was great. We. We always, as a team, when we do these shows, we always learn so much and we walk away going, that was amazing. And we also know, you know, we have a lot of listeners and our students are really, really going to get a lot out of this. So thanks for taking the time to be with us. And thank you for all the amazing stuff you're doing. I mean, you're really out there, the warrior. <laughs> thanks for being a warrior.
0: <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I'm glad we got to sit and talk.
2: Me too. Um So thank you so much, Cheryl Bailey. Thank you, Ian Steed, as usual. And um, thank you, Lynn Carrington. We're going to hang out for a minute and um, we'll see all the rest of you and, and we'll be with all the rest of you on the next Coffee Talk.